Friends, this is Morgan, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. I have a big smile on my face in this moment because I have the privilege of offering an introduction to one of my favorite modes of offering in this podcast. It's my joy to give you the opportunity to benefit from my wife, Sherry, and her walk with God in her years and years of discipleship. She's chosen for over a decade to consent to the process of becoming a trauma-informed educator. It's in the secret hidden places that we actually experience the most transformation that result in the most peace and the most joy and ultimately the most true and lasting impact on other people. With my oldest son, Joshua, turning 16, my wife is graduating from the decade of basically being an amateur Uber driver. She's spent the last 10 years shuttling our kids. But with it came this great provision of hours of hidden time where she got to hole up with 30 minutes here and 45 minutes here with hiding behind the school next to a dumpster to immerse herself in the scriptures, to listen to audiobooks, to cultivate contemplative prayer, to really chew on some of the ideas that God was bringing her and forming within her. And one of her passions is to really understand trauma, to understand anxiety, to understand how it gets stored and stuck in our bodies, and to then use our bodies as a means of restoration and healing and freedom. Sherry had the privilege of being invited as the first ever guest teaching pastor as a woman at Discovery Church Colorado. And it's really sad in some ways that our church culture hasn't uh, afforded women the privilege and the honor of being able to offer their gifting from the platform um, to the degree in which they're called to and capable of and would bring such benefit and blessing to many of us. But there are courageous communities who are giving voice to women, who are giving the platform to women, who are giving opportunities for women to come forth and offer life uh, entrusted to their care. So we're going to turn to a sermon that my wife offered from her own story, from our story, uh, a sermon of hope, and restoration and freedom and all that's possible and all that's very practical when we wrestle with uh, something that is very uh, profuse in our culture. Every one of us, I believe, either has struggled with anxiety or knows someone that's entrusted to our care that has battled anxiety. And Sherry and I have both learned through our walk with God that there is so much hope, there's so much promise, but we have to get to the root and we have to really begin to address what are the practical steps to move from anxiety to peace. It's my joy to share my wife's teaching with you. I think you're going to really like this. Let's dive in. My name is Sherry Snyder, and I am so deeply honored to be here with you. I have so much reverence for DCC. This endeavor that you're on to create a story-informed environment where everyone's story is safe, regardless of how the text reads, including mine. Thank you for a safe place to come. Today, we're going to talk about anxiety. What I've been trained in professionally and I'm continuing to be trained in is as a trauma-informed educator. But I come to you not as a trauma-informed educator so much as a sister, as a friend, as someone along the way, right by your side. It's uh, one of my heroes in trauma-informed care is named Bessel van der Kolk. And he says this, he reminds me that so much of research ends up being me-search, where we um, in response to challenges or suffering or anguish in our lives, we go searching out, venturing out on a quest to find resources adequate for what we're going through. To become a trauma-informed educator for me has been a lot of me-search. 
trusting there's got to be provision out there for the harm, for the challenges, for the suffering in the world. There has to be. I'm going to set out. I'm not going to stop until I find some provision. I'm so honored to be here to share some of what I found along the way. And I just love, I'm, I'm, I love being with you. I want to start with a, a memory I have from July 6, 2008. A memory where I showed up at a church in such intense agitation and anxiety that I couldn't actually stay in the service. I was, my heart was pounding. I was shaking. My mind was racing. I felt like I was going to jump out of my skin to the point that I had to get up, walk out to the hallway and begin pacing. I would have looked furtive, troubled, and agitated if you could have seen me. I was pacing, desperate to find someone who might be able to pray with me, who might be able to help soothe me and ground me so that I could at least feel like I could take a breath and hang on for another hour or so. Friends, that time is what I've come to refer to for Morgan and me as the great agony. Um, it's been a pivotal threshold time for both of us in 2008. Morgan shares really generously about our story and some of his resources, and I won't go into it now, but it, indeed, as is so often the case in the stories that we love, the place in someone's life that is, uh, presents the most challenge or the most suffering, that at times feels the most desolate and arid, through encounter, through a journey, becomes a very place of um, springs of life coming forth. So I, um, if you are in that place today where you are in such acute anxiety that literally to stay alive for the next hour is takes everything you've got. From all the reference in my heart to you, I, I, I wish I could just sit next to you and we could just breathe for a few moments together. Thank you for the courage you have to just wake up this morning and get out of bed amazing. I want to talk uh, first about a scripture. This is uh, the scripture that we're going to start with is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. You might remember, friends, where the context that Paul wrote this letter. He was writing from a jail in, um, in Rome to a church that he had planted, a, a community of people endeavoring to press into resources and provision for the suffering that they were experiencing in their own lives and in the um, environment around them. If you read, and I invite you to consider reading the whole book, the whole letter, it's profound. It has so much in there. But as I read it, I, I am struck. I have the, uh, Paul's, uh, this wellspring of life within him. From start to finish in that letter, he is so, the language is so energetic. He's like, I love you. I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In the opening chapter, he's like, I rejoice in God. I rejoice in God. He's, he has found some secret, he later says, to being have robust well-being in him, regardless of his circumstances. He intrigues me. I want to know, what did Paul know? How had his imagination been formed? And what did his story inform him that allowed him to embody so much joy. And friends, it wasn't joy in isolation. When you read Philippians, you get a sense he was so deeply interpersonally connected. His bonds of love were so in his favor. He was so fortified by the love he was experiencing in his life. So this is from uh, the fourth chapter of the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Excuse me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer, petition, pour your heart out without reservation to your God. And the peace of God, the very solidity that exists between the Father and the Son, the peace of God, the truth, transcends understanding will guard your hearts and your mind. As we begin to be curious about what Paul knew, I want to suggest that part of what Paul knew is that Paul had been formed in a tradition, in the uh, Jewish tradition that drew on these ancient texts. We recall that the Bible, is, it's maybe more complicated. It was more, the Bible is more complex than I was ever led to believe. It's really a library 
of very unique books collected together, some of which are poetry, some of which are narrative, some of which are these wild prophecies. It's, it's a lot to begin to be a student of this complex library of books. But you might recall this book called, the, uh, the book we call it the Book of Isaiah. It's a collection of prophecies written down by the prophet Isaiah and perhaps some of his students about 600 years before Christ. In the time when the Israelites were in exile to Babylon, and God was reaching out through the prophet Isaiah, and he was saying, I promise your story is not going to end in devastation. I promise, I promise I will come. I will come to you. The way we sang in that song, whatever mountain I have to climb up, whatever light I need to shine on shadowed areas, whatever walls I have to kick down, God will come. In the chapter 35, which is very precious and personal to me, Isaiah writes this, and remember, this is part of the, the, um, what had been so formative for Paul as a student of the Hebrew scriptures. The prophet Isaiah records this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Friends, it speaks so vividly to me of my experience of anxiety in my body. It's like my hands are shaking. I'm weak in the knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand within me and around me, within you and around you, between us, all across the world will become a pool and thirsty ground. Places of intense and dire need will become a bubbling spring. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sign will flee away. Sorry, guys, I'm going to adjust this. It's distracting me. Gladness and joy will overtake Melanie. Gladness and joy will overtake Greg. Gladness and joy will overtake Stacy. Gladness and joy, put your name in there, friends. Put our community in there. Put this fragile, precious, beautiful earth. Gladness and joy will overtake the earth that we love so dearly. Gladness and joy. So Paul is informed by this tradition, prophetic tradition. It's part of what um, is, I want to suggest is going on for him when he's able to call out to us to rejoice in God. So we're going to come back to that because what does that all have to do with Sherry Snyder in 2008, who is sitting in... Um, Sorry, he's got my kids. That was about bizarre how I broke into rejoice and they're laughing. Sorry, guys, that was a little intense. Um, so uh, you should be in the car with me in my minivan on the way to school. <laughs> She's a small piece. So what does it have to do with Sherry Snyder in 2008 who is in so much inner torment and anguish she can't sit still in her chair? In order to dig deeper into that, I'd like to do a little a short um, lesson in what's called the autonomic nervous system. The, a little drawing the curtain back on some of what's going on in our bodies when we're feeling intense anxiety. So I'm going to invite you to participate if you'd like. And what we're going to work is the hand model of the brain. If this is interesting to you, I encourage you to check it out online. If you just Google hand model of the brain, there's all kinds of resources out there. But I'm going to invite you, if you'd like, to hold up your right hand this is going to be uh, illustrate for us a very simplified illustration of the brain. So um, your wrist, in this case, if you want to touch your wrist, would um, emblemize the brainstem. So this is the part of the brain that's gonna that's committed to our survival. It's the part of our brain we don't have to think about our heart beating. Thank God we don't have to think about um, our processes of hunger and not being hungry. All of this stuff is controlled on our behalf. Because God has wired us to survive, to stay alive by this brainstem. It just happens without us consciously thinking of it. Taking your thumb and drawing it across. You guys are dreamy. Thanks for your participation. This is what we would call the limbic part of the brain or the emotional center. Within it is a, a, um, a part of the brain called the amygdala. We have two amygdalae. And they are in the shape of an almond. They're small. We're going to talk about them. But they function as our danger detector our surveillance system, looking out to, to protect us and to uh, signal us if we're under a threat. And then this top part, if you fold it over, this is your executive center, this neocortex. This is where language resides. 
the capacity to imagine, to dream, to reach out for um, creativity and imagination, to put thoughts together, to have a sequential mode of thinking. All of this resides here. I have asked a lovely assistant to come and join me for a little, uh, a little experience here. It's my husband, Morgan. I surprised him in the first service and he was such a sport. So this time you're not so surprised. Okay, you guys, Morgan is going to help us illustrate um, because uh, what it might be like to, for someone both, just a, for all of us to have a normal level of anxiety in the face of danger. And then what happens when our uh, threat detector gets stuck in the on position. So I'll give you a cue. Okay. Uh, imagine I'm at the park with my kids and I'm having a conversation with a friend and um, out of the corner of my eye, without even, before I can consciously even realize what's happening, my kids are starting to play and drift up. This is when they were littler, sorry guys. Uh, drift over toward the road. They're getting a little too close to the road. Here's what's going to happen in my brain. Just blow softly. It's my attention. It's perfect. So, um, Grab my attention. <laughs> Perfect. Remember, I said it. <laughs> you can quote me on it occasionally. Um, okay, so it's a, a little bit of a, it's working on our behalf. It's helping keep us safe and the people that we care about safe. So we need this. You guys, our survival mechanisms in the body are a gracious gift. The devotion of the divine to keep us alive, to wire us for survival. It's profound how sophisticated this mechanism is in us. Here's what hap happens, though, is that for some of us, our threat detector gets stuck in the on position, and it ends up feeling like this all the time. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, one more time, real long. Okay. Imagine trying to do your life. Thank you. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> have a conversation or speak in front of people when that's going on all the time. Friends, if you have anxiety or you are in relationship with someone who struggles with it, imagine what it's like to be in your skin with that going on all the time. It is so isolating because it's so interior and can feel so dissonant with the context that you're in. I remember I've, I've contended with that alarm going off loudly all the time for me since I was a little girl. I remember even in a, as a teenager being at parties and watching people like having so much fun and they're just enjoying themselves inside my alarm system's going off and I'm trying really hard to appear sort of supple and relaxed, but it is, it is so profound how different our experiences can be inside our own skin. Would that we could crawl into each other's skin now and then just to know and be known how different it is to be in each other's skin. Friends, I also want to acknowledge that how our threat detector, how uh, your threat detector, my threat detector perceives neuroceps uh, danger is directly related to our story. If you have had a history of harm, if you grew up in an environment of neglect or an environment of abuse or some mix, which is usually the case of both, the way that you're going to experience your nervous system is, is different from someone for whom their environment was not um, necessarily as intensely neglectful or intensely abusive. This is why it's so important for us to practice story-informed relationship with ourselves and with others, because we are not all on a level playing field when it comes to sensation in the body. Our stories really matter. And this practice of curiosity is so central, not only to intimacy with others, but to knowing ourselves and being known by our God. I want to suggest that Jesus is the most brilliant, story-informed, trauma-sensitive teacher, friend, lover, ever. He's the source of all brilliance when it comes to insight and trauma-informed insight. Thank you, God. So I want to talk about... Um, a couple of really pragmatic um, tools, as it were, that have been so important to me. And I have uh, came up with three little acronyms. Um, and the first one is PAL. PAL stands for pause and listen. 
The other day I was driving home in my minivan. I pulled into my uh, garage barely before the car was off. I like left out of the car, walked in the house, turned to the left, turned to the left, opened my pantry door to make sure that the box of red wine was still there that I had been hoping was there uh, non-consciously on the way of the drive home. And as I stood there, I had that gracious invitation of the voice of love inside me, inviting me, Sherry, what are you feeling right now? This beautiful interruption of love that came to me. And I realized I was feeling really anxious. And in that moment, I was going for the wine that I, I, I love my box of red wine. I appreciate it. But I wasn't going to celebrate or rejoice. I was going to manage this intolerable sensations in my body. <laughs> By, uh, several weeks ago, Greg invited us to be curious about how we compensate and manage for sensations that we're experiencing in our body. Mary Oliver said this. She said that um, she's a poet, and she said, from her perspective, the soul is built entirely out of attentiveness. As we let Jesus resource us with the capacity to pause and listen to what's really going on in our bodies and to become aware. So friends, we're going to practice. We're going to take about 45 seconds to just breathe and listen. And a couple of things to pay attention to is what, how would you describe your degree of muscle tension right now? How sort of um, agitated are you or relaxed? How deep is your breathing or shallow? How um, heart, how's your heart rate? Does it feel steady and reliable or is it racing? And without any judgment or evaluation or criticism, let's just notice how we're feeling in our bodies right now. Let's take about 30 more seconds. Jesus, thank you for your practice of listening and pausing. That you, Jesus, you are the author of all listening. You are the author of all regulation in your body that you can still yourself inside so that you can listen to us and be attentive to us. Jesus, form in us that capacity, both for our own sake and for the sake of those we love. Friends, I want to acknowledge that for um, some of you, the experience of anxiety might be like, oh my gosh, I got that. Like, I know anxiety. Like, I know what it is to fry an egg. Like, you know an egg. You know anxiety very well. For others of you, you're like, I don't get it. I just cannot relate. My hunch is that for those of us who can't relate to anxiety, that you have someone in your life, you care about somebody for whom this might be their interior anguish. This might be part of their challenge in life. I want to suggest that learning to pause and listen, both to tune into what we're feeling, but also learning to do that for those closest to us is, can be so generative. Let me tell you, if you live with someone who is um, anxious, if you can take responsibility for trying to regulate your own feeling levels of agitation in your body, because what often happens is if someone's anxious, the person who wants to help them starts ramping up too. And then it's like, it's, it's like a thing that just goes and goes and goes. So if, we, if we're trying to support someone who's anxious, if we can learn to pause and listen to ourselves, to try to keep ourselves calm so that in, in concert with our Jesus, we can, we can create a safe space for them to feel what they're feeling. <clears throat> so pause and listen. I want to put in a plug here for an app that Ransomed Heart has produced that's meaning so much to me. It's literally the pause app. It's beautiful, and I won't say any more than that, but just want to suggest if you get a chance, the pause app from Ransom Tart, and, and once you find it, you'll go from there. Second acronym I want to introduce is the acronym for of gas. Now, in my head, this was the gas you put in your car, but you can make it whatever gas that you want to make it. But what I wanted to say with gas is ground and soothe. We need, when our, um, like when Morgan was blowing that whistle and when we are agitated, when our body is responding as if we are in intense, imminent, life-threatening danger. For me, it was like I was strapped or I was glued on a road and there was an 18-wheeler coming on me and I couldn't escape. It was like that for about six weeks. 
that level of terror in my body that, that it's 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 terrible if we're in whether from a minor a level of anxiety or if we're in that acute anxiety we have to find ways to ground and soothe ground is a, a phrase used in the um, human wellness field or mental health field and it has to do with bringing ourselves back into the present moment so for some people um moving in their bodies is a really important way for them to bring themselves back in the present moment. I want to suggest that um, what sometimes gets us in trouble is we're searching for ways to ground and soothe that either bring harm to us or to others. Let me give you an example. I realized for me, one of the ways that I was trying to navigate with the anxiety inside of me was through something called codependence. And the bottom line of codependence is, an, is a reach for trying to control something external and an effort to control something internal. A lot of times what people who are struggling with codependence, instead of dealing with their own anxiety and finding ways to own that I'm feeling anxious and I'm going I'm, I'm to seek help and have my needs met, they try to control everyone else around them. If you live with someone who is handling their anxiety by trying to control you, I am so sorry. It is really tough. And that's, that is a tough, tough thing. So we have to be, become very aware. How are we grounding and soothing in ways that maybe are not, is not serving us or is not serving someone else? Another way that we try to ground and soothe oftentimes is a reaching for substances. You guys, compassion. We need, we need something to feel better. That's a terrible feeling. The curiosity becomes, how can I find ways to ground and soothe myself? that are helpful for me. A friend in this first service, out of nowhere appears a dear family friend of ours. She's about nine. Her name is Emily. She just brightly shows up in the front, um, in the, in the front row. She jumps on my lap. And in that moment, I was feeling a little anxious. I was feeling agitated in my body. And I wrapped myself around and I gave her a big hug. And as soon as I gave her that hug, I could actually feel the arousal level, the agitation level of my body soothe. And then I said, um, Em, I'm feeling a little nervous. Thank you so much for being here. And I said, Emily, do you ever get nervous before you dance? She's a dancer. And she said, yeah. I said, what do you do that helps you? She goes, I breathe. I breathe wisdom out of the, the mouth of a babe to be reminded that one of the deposits that God has given us for provision, for living in a world where there is sometimes such severe uncertainty, and such intense ambiguity is the gift of breath. So I love, it's so democratic, it's free. It doesn't cost anything. You don't have to have like access to some fancy club to have access to it. It's available for all of us. This God who's determined to provide for us. Our breath is perhaps the single most effective way to regulate arousal levels of um, agitation in the body. So learning to breathe can be a way to learn to ground and soothe. Friends, I, I will sometimes realize I've gone most of like an hour without really taking a deep breath. And I realize I do that sometimes to actually avoid feeling what I'm feeling. Because when I start breathing, I actually have to really start feeling my feelings. And sometimes that feels inconvenient. But I just want to leap over them. I want to suggest that having uh, awareness of what we're feeling is actually it's like tapping into some of the most precious data for um, pursuing a life, the life we, as Greg says, we all came in here looking for. I'm going to touch on that more in a second. So breathing, for grounding and soothing. What is your gas? What is your fuel for you? I want to suggest that we all have to figure this out for ourselves. What works for you and what works for your neighbor or your life partner or your daughter might be different. But what would it be like for us to all commit? I'm going to find one way to soothe myself that's kind, that's generative, that's healthy for me and for others. I, for me, um, what I call like mantras, um, which has an association with Eastern spirituality, but actually has a deep, deep footer in Christian spirituality as well. It's 2,000 years and then plus, if we go into the Hebrew traditions, a sacred saying or phrase that grounds us in the present moment, that connects us to the love of God. One of mine is, I connect it with my breath and I just say, I'm okay. I'm okay. 
and I breathe and I breathe and I say that and I watch my body start to soften down. Another for me that's very intimate between me and God is, God, here I am, my face with yours. I just repeat it over and over again and it brings me into this place where I actually feel the almost startling kindness of Jesus toward me, his face with my face. Here I am, my face with yours. What would be a sacred saying or a truth that is more precious to you almost than your own life that you could condense into a short phrase that could become grounding and soothing to you? Breathing, finding some sacred saying that's precious to you. And then you saw that with Emily, a hug. You guys, um, relationship. I love the other uh, week, Greg said this, that relief helps us for now, but relationship helps us from now on. There's a lot of studies that say one of the most uh, fortifying things for the human is safe interpersonal relationships where we really are known and seen and we can know and see. This is, turns me to my final point, which is that our anxiety can be bringing us precious information information data that is so important to us along the journey. Here's a couple. So this goes with this final uh, acronym, CAR, curious about the root. Friends, I want to suggest that often, or uh, at least often, I'm persuaded that at least often, if not almost all the time, there's our bodies are communicating something about our soul or our spirit or our story present or past. And that that information is so critical. It's like if someone came bringing me a sticky note of like a lot of things that, that would help me in my life. And I was like, no, no, I'm actually really would rather drink my wine over here than have that sticky note. My body is telling me something. Here's a couple things that maybe anxiety might be telling you in your life. Anxiety might be telling you that you, um, in an effort to medicate or compensate for pain in your life, that you are living outside your values, um, that you are living outside your own integrity. Sometimes in an effort to compensate or medicate pain, we lie when we want to be truth tellers. We steal when we want to come by things honestly. We cheat on the people we love because we're trying to navigate intense sensations in our life. And maybe the anxiety is because you actually are living outside your values. Friends, your anxiety is what's right with you. Thank God for the anxiety that's telling you that I think we're living outside of our values and we want to come clean. I want to know and be known. I want to be undone and laid bare before the eyes of love. Maybe your anxiety is because you're concealing something and your body is your friend saying, let's come clean. Maybe your anxiety today is coming because you are in a, a, a relational environment where to have uh, thoughts and feelings that are different from your partner or from your parents is uh, seen as a betrayal to them. And so that for you to own your feelings and your thoughts, you're in this impossible bind because if you were to own them, the people in your life would see that as be betraying them. Your anxiety is precious. It's telling you that something's not working for you anymore and the system of relationships in which you are embedded. Maybe your anxiety is telling you that you need more play in your life because you're, you're stuck in this, like all the sirens going off and something that would be really disruptive and help re-regulate your body would be to find some play. When I came in for the nine o'clock service, Jason was on a scooter, like scootering around here. And I was like, that's amazing. Maybe you need a scooter. And I'm not trying to be trite, but I'm saying that our bodies, literally our physiology takes on a life of its own and we might have gotten habituated to being anxious. And we act, play is one of the most incredibly winsome disruptions to patterns of anxiety in our life. How precious that your body's talking to you and saying, let's, we need some more play. Maybe your body's telling you that you don't have enough healthy touch in your life. Wait healthy touch, like Emily letting me give her that hug. Sorry, guys. Emily letting me give her that hug. The, the neurotransmitters that are produced from a hug. I think we know this. We, it's around in our culture. This is priceless information. I want to suggest that having anxiety, um, at least in many cases, is 
the wise voice of, of, of our bodies, which are gifted from God, to help um, spur us along the path of life that's telling us vital information about where either our internal resources or our external resources are not sufficient for our well-being. Maybe your anxiety is coming because you are, um, some of your central needs as a human are not being met. Friends, I urge you to go and do some research, dig around around what are the irreducible needs of a human without which he or she just simply is not, there, is not going to thrive. One, two of them are one is for love and the other is for respect. And friends, I say this in like 36 point, for men and for women, we have an irreducible need for love and respect. Respect of our boundaries, respect of our personhood, respect of our thoughts and feelings, men and women both. And love, love, love. We need love. We need love by healthy people. We need love that's secure, that, that our nervous system can actually rest. And finally, so maybe your anxiety is a precious gift saying, oh, I need more. My internal and external resources aren't, aren't, aren't enough right now. Where's there more? I'd like to say finally, maybe your anxiety is coming from living in an environment where the person that you live with, maybe they, they, their internal and external resources aren't working for them anymore and they have a lot of challenge with anger. A lot of times, if the person that you live with has um, challenged with anger, again, rooted in their own story or rooted in their internal and external resources not being sufficient right now, that um, your anxiety is telling you something precious. It's telling you that that, that situation is not working anymore. That feeling of having to be on eggshells all the time because you don't know when the person that you live with is going to fly off the handle. Friends, that is vital information. And if we only medicate our anxiety, we're going to miss the information that's being told to us about our stories present and our stories past. Statistically, um, men and women who have experienced sexual harm are going to be more um, prone to anxiety. Of course, that's what's right with you, not what's wrong with you. Likely in this room, about a third of the women and probably 15% of the men are survivors of sexual harm. Friends, if that is part of your story, and if you have anxiety associated from um, maybe need, maybe your body's telling you that you need a, a little more resource for the harm that you experienced, go after the provision, go after the more. Find, I want to suggest here, um, there's a 12-step group called ACA, Adult Children's of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. I just want to give a shout out. It's, their material is amazing. Finally, so be curious about the root. What in your story from either your family of origin or your story as a young adult or your story as a middle-aged person, past and present, what is your anxiety possibly telling you? Friends, I want to um, close with one more thought for me. Part of the reason that I had, uh, part of what I found when I went after the root, when I became, I looked into my car, became curious about the root, is I found some terrible things that I had come to believe both about myself and also about God. What I had come to believe about myself was several things. One is that I had to be perfect if I was going to be loved, cared for, effective or responsible. That is incredibly anxiety provoking. Who of us? None, none of us can be perfect. The amount of pressure that happened for me with that, believing that terrible thing. Secondly, is I really had a core belief that I was stupid, foolish, and a piece of crap. And so when things came to a head in 2008 and I made some decisions that I really regretted, I was convinced that it had finally happened. That which I had been on some level, thinking would happen since I was a little girl, that I would eventually blow it all up. I would just blow the whole thing up. It was happening before my eyes. And I came to believe that my ability to bring harm to myself and to those I loved was greater than God's ability to restore me or others. This has been a huge belief, subterranean belief that I found with almost an existential question at the base of my anxiety. 
Dallas Willard, who is one of my prized teachers, he says this, never let, ever let anyone convince you to believe something terrible about God. Never, ever let someone convince you to believe something terrible about God. Friends, is it possible that we've come to learn some terrible things about God? In um, one of his essays, George MacDonald, who was a a Scottish poet and, and theologian, he says that, Oftentimes, it would have been better not to have known God in some cases than to have learned him wrong. Where have you learned terrible things about God that might be contributing to anxiety in your life? McDonald goes on to say that because of the wide aperture of the hope offered in Jesus, that um, Christianity is all the more susceptible because of the, the aperture so broad to getting crazy distortions about who God is in that. It's such a big, a big aperture a lot of space to be filled with distortions. I just want to urge us to to take responsibility for saying, where have I learned things about God that are terrible that I need to revisit? Finally, where have you learned about yourself or about the nature of relationships? What has your story told you about who you are? That might be, the anxiety might become a treasure trail to, 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 Discovering a negative, a core negative belief about yourself or about God or about life that you get to turn over. Thank you, Jesus. Finally, I just want to say that anxiety can be a tool of our enemy. I know for me, the way I pray this is I, I have enough feel that I need to deal with on the inside. Things about my story that I want to be connected to. But when my enemy comes and agitates what already I'm feeling and, and escalates it. So I just urge you... Um, and if you have questions about this, I know that this church has resources to learn how to pray. I'm not saying that that's going to take all the anxiety away. I, like I said, I think there's some precious things to listen to regarding our anxiety. But when our enemy comes and he, he takes what we're, what we're contending with on the inside and then um, amplifies it, we have an enemy. And our anxiety can be very powerful in his hands. What I'd like to do is I'd like to, we're going to pray here in a second, but I'd like to just share with you back to that um, Isaiah 35. Part of the hope that Paul had been saturated in, that our Jesus was saturated in as a Jewish man growing up, was this hope that the ancient Hebrews had carried of this restoration of all things. In Christianity, sometimes we think that the hope of, the, the ultimate hope of Christianity is that we get to go to heaven when we die. But friends, if we look at the canon of the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we find the hope of Christianity is the restoration of all things when heaven and earth becomes one. Paul says we await a savior, Jesus, to come from heaven to earth. The day will come. Jesus will um, bring to a fullness this uh, period, this chapter of human history, and he will inaugurate the restoration of all things. Friends, I realized that the antidote to my belief that I was more powerful to destroy my own life or to hurt others than God was to restore, that the restoration of all things, I urge you, point you to Acts 3. Read the whole thing. It's Peter giving a sermon in, um, that's been recorded in Acts 3, but he talks about in Acts 3.21, he talks about the renewal the literal renewal of everything that Jesus will inaugurate when he returns. I want to suggest to you uh, a resource that we have at Ransomed Heart, John's book, All Things New, that this promise of the restoration of all things. Guys, I get anxious about the earth being, like the loss of wilderness is anxiety provoking to me. I, I, I'm, I bet like you, I love nature. It's how I come to know God. And the thought of the earth, um, our precious fragile earth being ravaged is very provokes anxiety in me. I want that anxiety to move me to action, but I also recognize my hope, Jesus, you, your fidelity to the earth, to every person, to every tree, to every species of creature is so precious to me. So to the restoration of all things in this age, yes, we're going to contend for it. And then also my dear friends in the age to come in full, I'll close with this. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, God, the mystery of his will that he kept hidden for ages and then in the fullness of time brought with Jesus to bring all things in heaven and on earth into union, back into unity with himself in Christ Jesus, the fullness of time, to the restoration of all things, to the, to the receiving of it, 
and offering it and fighting for each other's hearts in this age and then in the age to come. I'm so honored to be with you. I'd like to invite the worship team back up and then I'd love to just pray. Jesus, you know. Jesus, we consider that if pausing and listening is meaningful and effective for us as humans, it must be sourced in you. Jesus, you who are the great listener. Jesus, you know, God, where we have longed for your intervention and we have not seen it in the ways that we wanted to. Friends, I just say this, that I have have so much compassion and I've wrestled with people who have, um, as a result, in response to the agony in their lives, they have ended up taking their own lives. I have compassion for that because the internal anguish sometimes is overwhelming. And so I know that there's been times where we haven't seen Jesus show up in this age in the way that we would expect because we, we, we are convinced that his heart is good. Jesus, we give you access to the places in us where our story has brought questions about your reliability. Jesus, would you come this afternoon in the sunlight and in this season in our lives, would you intimately commune with us, speak to us about those those deep places in our lives? Jesus, would you give each one of woman and man here a vision of the restoration of all things? What is it, God, in their life that they want to contend for the restoration in this age, but also would you give them an imagination, ignite their imagination? As Paul's was ignited, God, an image of streams bursting forth from arid ground, the restoration of the barren places in our lives, the devastation becoming a renewed Eden. God, our bodies restored, our relationships restored, this precious earth restored. Would you give us a vision, ignite our imaginations? And Lord, I ask for um, just a deep, quiet space inside each of us. Lord, for my friends who are in that place of agitation where they are just like climbing out of their skin, would you just um, whisper, hold, come, and grant self-compassion and compassion for others to all of us as we intend to be curious about story our own and others. Thank you for this sacred group of family and families of families, a family of family here at DCC. Jesus, we would just remember that spring is telling us the truth, that this return of the warmth is telling us the truth, that the day will come when life returns. Help us to connect with the longing of our heart for the restoration of all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, in this podcast, I find myself sitting side by side with you as a fellow student learning from God manifested in my wife, and it's a treasure, and I'm honored to do so. And this podcast hits me very personally. Anxiety is something that I have battled for many years, though I couldn't have even named it until the last several years. But I can say that in my life, the last 18 months, if anything has marked my spiritual formation, has marked my initiation, has been an engaging with the reality of the battle of anxiety in my personal life and moving through breakthrough and restoration and freedom and incredible victory and incredible relief from anxiety in my body, in my soul. I remember a moment in about December of 2018, which was a low, it was a bottom, and it was this unnamed anxiety, undiagnosed anxiety deep in my soul. And I found myself sitting on my back porch in the bright sun with the cool winter air, and I was not in a good place. And I reached out to a dear mentor 
and said, can I get some time with you? And we ended up taking a drive through the mountains and having a cigar. And um, it, w- it was the beginning of my honest engagement with the fact that this isn't okay and it doesn't have to be this way. And what began in December was this fierce commitment to get to, as Sherry said in her teaching, the root. What is the root? Where did this start? How does God want to tend to my soul? And the story is wild and truly supernatural, but through the slow and steady from December um, with some breakthrough moments in April and then in June, into July the following year. And now I sit at almost two full years um, beyond that moment. But what I can say is I've had near 100% relief from this anxiety that, that in some times felt nearly debilitating. And so I sit as a man in process. I sit as a man still contending um, with many other frontiers that I'm battling, but this anxiety is real and the relief and the restoration that's possible is also real. So I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and I would invite you to take um, the examples that Sherry presented to us with these ideas of gas and pal and car and hold on to those pictures, hold on to those words, put them into practice this week and watch how in time and over time, you and the people entrusted to your care can move from anxiety to peace in ever increasing measure. Thanks for joining Sherry and me on this Become Good Soil podcast. It's always an honor. It's always a privilege to be able to visit in this way with you in your world. Just know that you're not alone, that you are standing with the like-hearted few, that there's a road that leads to life, that is being recovered together by us as a fellowship. Let's keep going.